welcome Bob Cornuke, if you would, to the stage today at Journey Church International. Bob, it's so good to have you. Good to be here. If you could have that guy introduce me every place else I ever meet Bob Cornuke. I mean, that was like incredible. This guy's voice. That's Scotty Rummel. He does, if you go to the movies and see James Bond or Jurassic Park, or all, that's the voice in the theaters. And he's a real strong Christian guy, and he does their voices for us. But, you know, on the phone, you talk to him, it's, Hi, Bob. <laughs> and then he goes in the studio, and he goes, Two men going through the desert. <laughs> yeah, well, that was incredible. So it's so good to have you here today. Um, take us back 30 years ago, if you would. So Jim Irwin is on the moon. Yes. Um, an astronaut on the moon, and he has this, this supernatural spiritual experience where... God is so real to him, he comes home um, and decides he's got to begin to search out and find mm-hmm. some of the things uh, in the Bible. A friend of a friend introduces him to you. Mm-hmm. You're a former SWAT team member, police detective, crime scene investigator, um, graduated from the FBI, homicide investigation school, and he says, you were the guy to go with me right. to keep us safe, and you're the guy to collect evidence, catalog evidence, record it correctly. And now 64 expeditions later, um, we're here. Tell us how that journey began and how you got here. Well, I have to go back to the very beginning to show you what the template of my life is so you can understand my spiritual walk. Um, I was 12 years old, lived with a father who was a real heavy drinker, bartender, you know, kind of physical, throwing things around. So when, when Sunday night or Sunday morning came around, about 10 o'clock when he woke up, he'd be hung over from Saturday. And he, he had kind of a angry, violent kind of bent to him. So we just got out of the house. And then when he had breakfast or lunch and he started watching football, then he kind of was okay again. You know, that dad had a, that up and down kind of personality. But I knew that at 10 o'clock on Sunday to 12, I had to be out of the house. That was the DMZ zone, and so I'd just drive my bike around the neighborhood, and one day I saw a church, said sign out the front, said free donuts. I said, well, I don't have any money, I just pulled in, I said to the lady, I said, is it really free donuts? She said, oh yeah, here's some cocoa, and have as many donuts as you want, so I'm, you know, Homer Simpson, I ate more than he did. So I went, so all of a sudden they said, well, church is starting, and come on, and I went, all right, I found myself sitting in the back of a church, all by myself, 12 years old. And I'm sitting there going, this is really nice, stained glass windows, the flowers smell good, the choir was great. And all of a sudden, they passed a plate of money in front of me. I said, free donuts and free money. I took $5, (laughs) put it in my pocket, I passed the plate. I said, this is great. They pay you to come to church, they give you a donut. Did you really take money? I took five. In fact, the second week, (laughs) I thought about it all week long. And, I, and I, they passed the play, I took five, and the second week I said, why did I just take five dollars? I got twenty dollars. <laughs> Pretty soon people are telling me, you don't take it, you give it. I go, okay, and I got the system, all right. Yeah. I, I don't like the second system. So the, anyway, the donuts but, aren't free but, but, yeah, <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, so at the end of the day, they're not free. But then after church, they had softball, and I was a great baseball player in school. went to college on a fo- football scholarship. Played baseball, I was the star of the team kind of thing. So they said, well, come back next week. So I came back week after week after week and got a year went by and I had perfect attendance. The only one, that, and parents didn't take me to church. 
So then they took me to Green Oaks Boys Ranch as my, uh, as my reward. It's a week at Boys Ranch. And uh, they give you more donuts, and then they lead you, on Friday, they, they lead you to come to Christ kind of thing. You know what I mean? They get you all sugared up with donuts. You know, you want to accept Jesus? Yes, I can go for it. <laughs> so, but it changed my life. I tell you what, I just, after that, after that week, and get that spiritual stuff, and then I, did, then I came time to, you know, I went to college, and then at the end of that, I had to select a career, so I selected police. I mean, I was already addicted to donuts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know donuts. <laughs> so, so what a career. Every night I get all the donuts I want free as a cop. So, you know, the, so then I, I, I got in a very bad shootout after 10 years in a SWAT team and uh, was, uh, did, did the investigations, done about 500, I've seen 500 investigations involving dead people. So, um, you know, I just got tired of that. And then I got in a real bad shootout. It was real bad and the guy was killed and I was about 30 feet away and it was 700 rounds and over three hours and so uh, after that I came out to Colorado, did some fly fishing, met with my brother Paul. We started a business, had a large business that started a very good uh, development business. Then met Jim Irwin, the eighth man to walk on the moon, first one to drive the car. How do you remember, how many, out there, who, who remembers seeing the astronauts walk on the moon? No, 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 I mean live on TV. Really? Live on TV? Stay seated if you didn't, but those of you saw, stand up real quick please. If you saw it live on TV, stay standing. Stand up and stay standing. Okay, stay standing. Those of you who are sitting, look at these people. This is what you're going to look like when you're really old. <laughs> so eat vegetables and floss your teeth because it's going to be a bad situation if you don't. Right there. So I met Jim and he said, hey, he walked on the moon. He said he lifted up his visor and he saw the earth suspended in black space. He said, Bob, everything in space is dead. It's a death zone. He said, so he saw this blue and white and green and brown ball suspended in death. And he said... There was no explosion. There was no cosmic accident. This was put in the universe. This was put in place by the master craftsman, by God. So he, he, he had a real transformation of the moon. He said, Bobby, it was really profound. We've talked about it many times when I was alone with Jim just talking. He said, it just, he said it's just like God just hit a switch. He goes, he realized it's, it, 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 that heaven was put in place by God. You can't see heaven in, in, in the universe and not be believing in God. So he came back to earth. He started a ministry, High Flight Foundation, which is looking for lost locations in the Bible, looking for Noah's Ark. So he said, Bob, would you come look with me for Noah's Ark over in Turkey? We did, and uh, t 64 trips later, I'm still doing it. And, and you, are, you are a trivial pursuit question, if any yeah. of you have ever played that game. If you're under 20... Trivial Pursuit is kind of like Angry Birds for smart people. Um, but you probably don't, don't know what that means. But for a yellow pie, what sacred peak did adventurers Larry Williams and Bob Cornute claim they found after sneaking into Saudi Arabia? And the answer for all the smart people is? Mount Sinai would be the answer to... You, you're, a tri like, you're a Trivial Pursuit question. When you make I mean, that's, like real, that's like really cool. When you make Trivial Pursuit, you barack. <laughs> yeah, you... you <laughs> You there. And, Le and Larry Williams, the guy that was with me, so you might know the actress Michelle Williams. You know the famous actress Michelle Williams? Two Academy Award nominees. That's his daughter. And so I helped, wow. helped raise her. And so she's a big star. So 64 expeditions later, five times in prison in the Middle East, twice in Iran, once in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, and we are here today to talk about kind of the things that Bob has seen, the things he's found, the things he's looked for. Um, and if you're brand new today, welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. If you're here today, it's our goal that today there'd be a lot of people at our church um, who, who came, who wouldn't even consider themselves Christians. 
Uh, maybe you've had bad experiences. Maybe, maybe you would be on the far end of kind of anti-God. Um, we're really glad that you're here. And our goal today, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a church person, you're even kind of uncomfortable being here, um, our goal today for you is two things. One, that you would feel loved, that you would know that we're glad that you're here, and two, that you would have permission um, in your spirit to keep asking questions. Because it's questions that have led you on all of your um, expeditions to look for things in Scripture. Talk to, um, talk to the person in the crowd, but both those who are Christians... Um, those who, who would not consider themselves Christians because of the questions, uh, are questions good or bad? Are questions a lack of faith? Or, or, or Talk to us just about having questions that trouble us spiritually and how the last 30 years your searches have maybe helped clear that up a little bit. Well, I th- thank you, uh, Pastor Christian. I, I, I look at evidence. Uh, ev- by the way, evidence isn't proof. It's the proper interpretation of evidence that is the proof. You know, we look at things differently in life and we have an agenda and sometimes the agenda drives the end of what we're asking. Uh, you know, look at Democrats and Republicans, you know, they're just, you see them on TV and it gets a little sickening. You sort of hear this, this back and forth. They, they see the, the same situation they're looking at and they see it completely different. And a lot of people look at the Bible that way and they see it through an agenda. I mean, you know, if you're married, you see things different, right? Anybody here see anything different than... Not me. I don't see any hands go. Maybe you, you guys are gutless, okay? You, you, I just got, I'll tell you what, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I got in a little discussion, and she thought she was right, and I thought I was right, and it's kind of going into that almost an argument phase, and I said, you know, the wisdom of Solomon, I said, I have to stop this. I said, honey, you know, you think you're right. I think, I said, I tell you, if you admit I'm right, I'll admit I'm wrong. She goes, cool, you go first. <laughs> I said, I'm wrong. She says, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> You can't win, guys. I know why you didn't raise your hand, because, you know, you know. So we see things differently. And we, we look at the Bible, and some people put, look at it from the goggles, like, like professors and the people in universities, well, they, because they live in the natural world. The natural world is absent of the spiritual world. So what they do is they say, well, we have the answers. Those Christians don't have the answers. They're, faith is good. Bible's good. They need that as a crutch. Okay. Well, it's not a crutch. It's a stretcher to get you into heaven because you're, you're li- we're all sinners, right? The Bible is that. So um, scholars want three things. They want prestige, they want to be promoted, and they want to be published. And when you're, when you're, if they, they say anything about Noah's Ark, they're going to get hammered. Believe me, I get called from university professors all the time and say, I can't talk openly about this because I will be persecuted in my, in, in my university. I'll be fired if I say I believe this. So they, they live their lives, and so when you go to university, you know that your, your students out here that are going to university, 80% will fall away from their faith. 80, it used to be 70. 80% statistically, your students, take them to church, take them to Bible study, they will fall away from their faith. Why? Because they're being taught that, that they, what they do is they'll say, professors will say, well, I, I'm not going to deny that there was, let's say, uh, uh, that, that the Nile turned to blood, as the Bible says, right? But they say there was a strong rain up in Nubia, and it washed the red clay there down. It went into the Nile, and it became red, not from blood, but from the rain and this. There, there's a cause and effect. There's a natural explanation for every supernatural event. So one in a sense what they're doing is they're gutting God of the divine. 
and the fallout is that students are falling away from their, their, their faith because they, they don't believe that there's a spirit. But God says, the man without the spirit does not accept that things come from the spirit of God for they're foolish and he can't understand for they are spiritually discerned. See, there's a spiritual element. Matthew eleven twenty five says, uh, O Father, O Lord of heaven, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever and for revealing it to the childlike. Do you know what that, that's saying, that verse? Oh, Father, Lord of heaven, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever and revealing to the childlike. God is calling you to be a child in your faith. Not childish, which is running around and acting like a kid, but childlike. In other words, the father is going to, you're going to jump off the bunk bed, the father is going to catch you. You know that. You get in the car, you don't say, Dad, do you have gas? Do you know where we're going? No, you get in, you go, you trust your dad's going to take you there. You've got to trust, you've got to get in the car of God and trust He's going to get you there. You've got to have that kind of faith, you see, because Scripture is just telling us here, there's a curse of abandonment. When you abandon God, you are now not able to see. Thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever. There is a shield that goes up if you think yourself wise, and you don't go in the spiritual world. And that's why I look, you know, when I look for Noah's Ark, I don't care if we find Noah's Ark. In fact, I've told people if we find it, let's just put a match to it and burn it. Because people are going to start worshiping the wood. We shouldn't worship the wood. We should worship the, 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 the very essence of, of the ark was a forerunner of Jesus. That was, that, was a, that was heralding in Christ. The ark of Noah, if you're on that ark, you're saved. And if you're off that ark, you perish. The Bible says that everybody perished outside and everybody survived inside. But when that door closes... It's like when your life ends, that door is going to close. Are you on the ark or are you off the ark? There's no spiritual Switzerland. There's no safe zone. You're either on it or you're off it. And so I tell people, what does it care if we find Noah's ark? It's just an old piece of wood. It'd be fun. It'd be exciting. It'd be encouraging to people in their faith. But I think it's, it's a symbol of, of Christ. And we, we need to be on that ark or off that ark. And that, God doesn't paint in gray, pastel-y, foo-foo stuff. He, it, it's stark. He's either black or white. You know, and that, we don't like that in our culture today. But God calls us to get on the ark. And part of your discoveries are not just to find the artifacts, but to find them so you can point people to Jesus. Um, and you've done that with a Bible study we're getting ready to have as a church. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Acts chapter 27. Because we have been studying, for those of you who go to our church, all year long we've been studying the book of Acts. It's uh, 28 chapters long. It's a story of how Jesus' church started. All summer long we studied the life of the Apostle Paul, um, who was God's chosen instrument, his chosen pastor, to go talk to people who weren't Jewish um, by ethnicity or by religious culture, um, to go talk to them about who Jesus was and how they could follow Jesus. But we read just last week that the Apostle Paul went back to Jerusalem uh, he was arrested, nearly beaten and killed by a mob. And this is going to lead to him eventually, after several trials and several year, years, appealing his case to Caesar in Rome so that he wouldn't be killed. And they were going to put him on a boat in Israel. They were going to sail him up to Rome where he could stand before the Supreme Court of Rome and they could figure out whether or not they were going to kill him. And within that ship ride to Rome, um, they encountered a terrible storm, according to Scripture. It's detailed very accurately. And they shipwrecked on an island called Malta. We have that narrative in Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 27. We're two weeks into the storm. They haven't seen night or day for two weeks. They don't know, any, they don't know where they are. They don't know whether it's night or day. All they know is that it's been two weeks. They're praying they're not going to die. 
And here's where the narrative picks up, where we find some great evidence left on planet Earth of a great biblical narrative. Um, and I'm going to let Bob and his team, after I read this narrative, pick up with, okay, how do you go search for this and what did you find? It says, on the 14th night, so two weeks into this storm, we are still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings, and they found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to, the, to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without any food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God in front of them all, then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. All together, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, cutting loose the anchors. They left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail and to the wind and they made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast, it wouldn't move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Now, I want to pause right there. You're in, you're in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. searching, doing biblical exploration. You have a trip you're taking across a massive lake, mm -hmm. and you're in a shipwreck and, and nearly die. That leads you to begin studying shipwrecks in the scripture. Take us from that lake in Africa all the way through showing us what you believe are the physical anchors we just read about in Acts chapter 27. Thank you. I believe that, uh, that we found the anchors. Oh, but by the way, that's arrogant to say we'll never find anything. God reveals things in his time for his purpose and his glory. So I have found that if I just stay faithful to Scripture, we can find these things. This is the final arbitrator, mediator, and compass that I use. But I was in Mall. I was in. Uh, I did a couple of TV specials for History Channel on uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, last year we did one called Proving God. Anybody see that? Besides my mother. <laughs> um, so we're going. We're going across this lake, and uh, we're, we're filming, and then we're coming back. At, and my. My guide, Miskana, said, uh, this is the, there's a storm. And we looked behind us, and there was this big, ugly black clouds that were just swelling in, in, the, you know, the, in the horizon and lightning spitting out of them. And, boy, we're trying to race it to get to shore, but it just overtook us right in the middle of the shore or just you know, on the other side of the lake. And the waves were 15. It was, it was just swamping us and knocking us all over, and we're plowing through. And we're on about a 40-foot metal boat that was an old 1950 belching diesel smoke out and we hit a reef and we went over the reef and it ripped the bottom of the boat and knocked off the propeller we started sinking 
And so we're thinking, okay, we're going down. We're not going to survive. This is a bad storm. We only had two life preservers. I gave those to the two elder men, and they happen to be very wealthy guys, the real wealthy donors of mine. So I made sure they got the life preservers. <laughs> you know, I don't want to kill your donors. So, you know, the other people I don't care about, but my donors are going to go. So uh, we, we, the, and then we prayed about it, and then a boat was, came over the horizon, and it was a little tiny light, and it came over the horizon, came up next to us, and there was fishermen with, covered with nets, and fish were all in there, and they had their rain slickers on. It was raining like crazy, so we jumped in the boat and almost sunk it with our guys, just kind of, but we got to shore, got on the shore. Everybody just got on their knees and just prayed, God, and these guys were crying, and I did remind the two wealthy guys, I did give you the life preserver. <laughs> And so then I came back, I was reading this Bible, this very Bible I was reading in the plane, and I, you can see this, this is uh, the same Bible I had, and I was reading this in Acts, and I said, um, wait a second, there's a great shipwreck, but it gave, there's more verbiage in the shipwreck of Paul in, in, in Acts 27 to 28 than the entire creation account in Genesis. And Paul was on, uh, you know, he was on other shipwrecks we, we hear about, but you're nothing, not a word. But here... Luke is talking and he's blabby. He's going on and on and on with all this detail. And, you know, he's talking about this. And I believe it could be uh, written as an account to defend the centurion because he would certainly shouldn't have let the prisoners in Rome. You kill the prisoners. You don't let them escape. And he's telling them to go escape. So obviously he had good favor with Paul. So, and, uh, so we're reading this about, you know, it picks up here with... Pastor Christian saying about the 14th night, they're driving, driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. They were, they were in a bad storm. And uh, Paul is on the ship. He's going to Rome to appear before Caesar. Uh, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He spent two years in Caesarea in jail. Then he goes up to Sidon and then follows the coastline you'll see in a moment. But there was this huge storm that comes. It blows him down towards the Sirtis Sands, which is Libya. And then the Bible says he came up and he hit. And so the way we... we, we studied the vectors and the storms and everything over there he they would have hit the southeast coast of malta so at the southeast coast of malta i'm reading scripture here that the that the anchors were left in the sea well that's you know this is like kryptonite for i mean this this is like great we're going wow those anchors the bible's saying that they were left in the sea and anchors are lead and they'll last forever in the ocean uh, and these lead uh, crossbars and these anchors of alexander and grain freighters which were massive I mean, massive ships, 276 men on just the, the deck of the ship, filled with grain. And so could we find these anchors? Could they survive? So I talked to a couple of my donors and the guys at Life Vest. And I said, hey, let's go over and fund this thing. So we went over and I did this research. And when I got to Malta, I found, okay, there's the bay with the beach. There's where the two seas come together. The Bible talks about the word is tapandathalasan, where two seas come together and meet. I did all the, the, just like a crime scene investigation, all these things that Paul's talking about. And I got right down to an area about the size of this basketball court, where it had to be. Okay? And the whole earth, I, I zeroed it down to that one place. Now, they've never found four anchors in the Mediterranean Sea, right at a place like that, or anywhere. I said, well, four anchors. I mean, this is a long time ago. But these anchors are made out of lead. And lead is very resilient. And they had a high silver content in those days, which adds ease into the resiliency. So I did all this research, got all these people. Long story short, I got together with some divers. And I took the divers out. And they were smoking cigarettes. They're older guys, you know. And they're going, yeah, well, we were, we were diving here, uh, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. And we found four anchors. Right here. 
We, we picked him up and we took him to shore. We lift, you'll see in a minute the lifting. Took him to shore and put him in our backyards and our garages and we're hiding him because it's against the law to take him. But they're really cool. Like you find a wagon wheel out and you're driving across the desert and you see a wagon wheel. You're going to take that sucker, throw it in your trunk because it's a cool thing to have, you know. You know, people, can, covered wagons. Come. Well, they thought the same thing. Antiquity treasures. So they hid them. It took me two years to track down all four of them that were taken out and hidden. So let's watch the video and I'll take you through this uh, expedition if you'd like to see it. Okay, Paul is uh, leaving Caesarea. He heads up to Sidon. There he goes to shore. The, uh, the centurion, Julius, lets him go to shore. Don't know what's wrong with Paul. Scripture doesn't say, but then they got on, a, on their boat and they headed up and they went to Myra. And now they're kind of making their way along the coastline. In those days, they didn't go A to B usually. They just kind of went along the coast. They get in Myra. They get a large Alexandrian grain freighter. Uh, you can see how big it would have been. Uh, then as they're going down from Crete along uh, uh, the, Paul is warning the owner of the ship and these owners made a ton of dough because they, they were taking grain from Alexandria so they were making like equivalent like a million dollars today is money so this guy's saying hey we, we, we're going we're gonna to go on and Paul says no there's a storm coming and so sure enough one of the biggest storms in the Mediterranean called the Eurocliden like a typhoon hits them uh, they're on the boat these guys are, are getting tossed around we filmed this, by the way, uh, in Malta where they filmed. They have a big water tank where they do all the movies over there. The great, the great ocean movies and submarine movies that you're seeing. U-51 or whatever it is. 571 is there. So anyway, they're going south. They go past Clouda. That's where they put the lifeboat on. And then they drop the sails and they're just floating. Now they're just a piece of driftwood because they can't, the storm's just ripping it apart. So they're just floating now. And the Bible is saying that they're going down towards Serta Sands. The sailors are worried that they're going to Serta Sands. Serta is the Libya today. And there's no water there for 300 miles. So they're worried about shipwrecking there, getting caught in a sandbar and dying because there's no water. So these sailors know it's a bad place. And so they, they turn the ship, they bring it up, and they start going right here over the Serta. You see the yellow band there? That's the Serta Sands. They turn that big ship, and they, they go up and they hit Malta in the southeast coast of Malta. Now, if you take the vectors here and you take the topography of the ocean bottom and everything together, it's pretty easy to figure out. This was, this was archaeology 101. Okay, now when the 14th night had come about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Okay, these are, this is actual film of Malta in a storm. You don't want to go... Malta's a big rock, that just a big knuckle of rock that sits out of the ocean. It's about 18 miles long and out 8 miles across. So it's just this, but there's no beaches there except there's three beaches, and Scripture talks about one of them. So this is the yellow is where they dropped and took the soundings 120 feet, and they went a little further and they found it to be 90 feet. Now what is a sounding? A big piece of lead. They drop it over the side. They measure the rope, how many, because every six feet they have a knot, so they measure by the knot going through their fingers. So the yellow dot is 120 feet. The red dot is our drop zone, about the size of this auditorium, and that is... Uh, they're now fearing lest they should run aground on the rocks because they're hearing those waves crashing. There's cliffs there except for that little sliver of beach. So they drop four anchors into the water. Okay, so four anchors go in. Uh, they were found in a 120-foot spread pattern, by the way. If they're on a ship, they'd be only about 40-foot spread pattern because they've gone down on the ship and stayed inside us and they wouldn't migrate across the ocean bottom. So the next day the sun comes up. They see a bay with a beach. 
They're saying, wow, they're, they're anchored out there now off the stern. Now, you guys are sailors out there. You don't put the anchors off the bow. You put them, I mean, you put them off uh, the, the, the bow, don't you? You don't put them off the stern, but they dropped them on the stern. So they'd be weather-veined into, the, into going, and so they're going to scuttle the ship. But there's cliffs on the left side, and uh, though those cliffs, and then there's cliffs on the right side. So there's nowhere to go except this little zone of that white there. And you see the white along the coastline there, that little white kind of little, little almost a C shape. That's the bay with the beach. Everything else is rocky cliff. Uh, the blue bar is the spine of the reef. The Bible talks about there's a reef there. And Luke is saying, I don't know if we can make it across the reef. And that's about 30 feet under the water. And so then he describes, Luke describes, where two seas come together. Where the water, you can see here, uh, the water. Now this is just a windy day. We weren't there during a storm. I wish there was during a storm. But you can see where the waves are going from left to right and right to left. You see where they're kind of curling there together? That's where the ship went aground right there is where that, that curling was uh, out there. This is the, this storm expert in Malta, uh, Graham Hutt, wrote the book on it. I've been studying the storms and the weather patterns in the Mediterranean over the past 30 years. Um, and uh, it resulted in a book on North Africa and Malta which covers all these uh, issues with the weather. In my opinion, bearing in mind where they most probably would have been. St. Thomas's Bay is a much more likely place. So this is St. Thomas Bay. That's the Moonshire Reef. This is where it happened, folks. This is, this is where the shipwreck. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind because everything fits here. So you can see where the two seas come together, the blue bar. And so would we find anchors right there? Now, these divers I took out, and these divers in the late 60s, 70s would go down, and they'd catch a lot of fish right at this spot. This is where the Moonshire Reef is. It's a, it's, a, it, it's a spine of rock that comes out and about a mile and a half long. So they call it the bank. They go out there and these guys would take their spears and bam, they'd pop a grouper that's hiding in a hole. And it was just like taking candy from a baby. They were making so much money, 19, 20 years old. One guy bought a, a jaguar from just the amount of fish that they caught. And so they bring up these fish and, and they, they sell them to the tourist and grouper, they made a lot of money because groupers very nice fish, very, very good to eat. Uh, and this is, these are two guys in one day. Okay, that, that's, that's money. Uh, you look at all that, that. So look at all those grouper in one day. It was around 1975, Bob, when we went down. Uh, we used to dive this area very, very often. Uh, in those days, we used to be spear fishermen. There wasn't many divers around. And uh, came across this big... Roman anchor, which we learned afterwards, it was a Roman anchor made out of lead, and uh, then we came across another tree, not very far away from each other. And so they would take uh, barrels, 50-gallon barrels, and they would fill, they'd tie ropes to them, and uh, they'd fill them with air. Of course, this is all reenactment, you know, it's very expensive to do this. Uh, so they'd fill with air and they'd bring up the anchors and then they'd take them to shore. This is just, I want to show you what, what happened. This is not actually when it happened. Uh, so then they, then they took them to shore and then they hit them at their houses. And uh, this, this is not one of the anchors. This is a model of an anchor in the Maritime Museum in Valletta. Uh, I purchased the anchors that were recovered, uh, $20,000 worth, and then we invested and we gave them to the people of Malta. So they're in the museum today if you want to see them at the Maritime Museum in Malta you can go see them so uh, but one of them was was cut up and I'll talk about that in a second uh, one of them was was destroyed but this is the first anchor 
found by Charlie Greck and Tony Malakar Borg, and uh, they were found off the Moonshar, and so big, big uh, anchor here. Uh, the second anchor found uh, by Ray Chancho and uh, Tony McAuliffe Borg, and uh, this anchor was uh, uh, taken to Tony's house, and I had to meet with his widow, and then she showed me in the back. The kids were sitting and using that as a teeter-totter, uh, playing with it, you know, when, when I found it. This is a, the third one was uh, cut up, uh, tragically, we have drawings of it, by eight people to say it, it was one of the anchors, and... We had it verified by the University of Malta, but they just cut it up and melted it because they had no lead. It was after World War II, and they needed lead for their dive weight. They took, they had four anchors. They said, we'll just cut up one of them and melt it down, little pieces, chunks of it, melt it, and pulled and poured them in a mold. This is the fourth anchor. This has a collar. This is the best shape one. This is a big anchor. Of course, it was a big ship, and uh, these things, uh, look, look at that, that thing's five foot long, you know, so this was found in someone's garden. It took me... Uh, a long time to find that one because uh, that had just disappeared into the island and it took me months to find years. What you have just shown me is, uh, to be precise, a part of an anchor. It's called an anchor stock, uh, which is in lead and which is uh, a, uh, an essential part of a typical Roman anchor. Uh, which had its floor width, uh, that is the flourishing period, yeah. around the first century AD. That was a professor, wrote, he wrote the book on the history of Malta, so professor. And uh, this is a general, uh, Major Maletta, and so we said, well, hey, there's a search and rescue center. We went over and said, well, if you had a big grain freighter, what's the coefficient of friction, the size, the wind, the storms, the vectors, and how it moved? Uh, he went through it on the computer. After two hours, it came out and said the ship would have grounded on the 14th night on Malta. That's exactly what the Bible said. This guy's jaw dropped open. He goes, it says, he, goes, he plots where the search and rescue. He said it fits perfect with what the Bible says. A New Zealand broadcaster said, look, I've just come across a book you have to read. And sent me a copy of Bob Cornick's book, um, The Lost Shipwreck of St. Paul. I thought I was going to be hearing all about how he came ashore on St. Paul's Island and so forth. Started to read this thing and became fascinated. But he presents the case for his theory of where Paul actually came, came ashore. Not as some kind of wishy-washy, uh, this would be nice sort of thing, but, but with straight investigative detail. One after the other, the points are raised. Everything is tracked down to the ultimate nth degree until so you, you realize that all the evidence is, in fact, there. That, that man that you just saw that was talking, his, you know, he's a stepson of C.S. Lewis. Anybody here C.S. Lewis? You know? Well, he also owns the Narnia stuff. So in the audience, you know the, the Narnia stuff? So he owns all that and, uh, his, from his dad. And um, he, uh, uh, he's the voice in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe before they go in. The wardrobe. He's the BBC voice on the radio, you know, telling them about the bombing. That's his voice. But to have C.S. Lewis, the stepson, endorse this is a huge thing. Because what I do for a living is really open to criticism. And when you go against traditions, Jesus says in Mark 7.13, he says, your traditions will nullify the word of God. We don't need to go and follow old traditions. We need to follow what God is saying. So there's a lot of traditions that are man-made, uh, where Noah's Ark is, where Mount Sinai is. 
Those are all traditions that were invented by people. Queen Helena in the fourth century was a mystic and a fortune teller for a lot of this stuff. The result is Mount Sinai and the Church Holy Sepulcher. But the Bible says, you know, follow me. I, the Bible is, is, is God's revelation of himself to man. God is the author, salvation is the end, and truth without any mixture of errors the content. The Bible is and shall remain the supreme standard by which we should live. And what also I use is, is a guide. I believe the Bible is prophetically, contextually, and historically accurate, and it can be relied upon. In fact, it's the only history book that's flawless. Every history book that's ever been written, mine included, we have a lot of errors in it because we're dependent on man. I depend on God's word when he's telling these vectors. So that's what I do is I just use God as a, as a guide. So let me ask you this question. You've testified in a lot of court cases as, a, mm -hmm. as an expert witness mm -hmm. um, with evidence. If, would, you, would you testify as an expert witness um, from evidence? What, what, what would be the probability? I mean, Paul didn't sign these before they went down. He didn't say, hey, let's, let's make a note that these are the ones from Acts 27. You know, Paul and Luke were here. You know, they didn't write that on the anchor. So what, I mean, what is really the probability when you look at the island of Malta, when you look at Acts 27, that, I mean, these are really the anchors from Paul's ship? Interesting you should ask that, uh, Pastor, uh, because uh, Chuck Missler, great, he was the one that taught at Calvary Chapel, Chuck Right, with Chuck Smith. He mathematically computed it's 10 to the 50th power that these are anything but the anchors, okay? That's 10 to the 50th, that's 10 with 50s. In other words, it's like, it can't be not the anchors. You have to force feed your mind past reason and logic. But for some people, evidence is not enough. And if I brought down Noah's Ark and just said, here it is, they'd say, well, it's just an old, old wood up there. There's a lot of people that just, it's not a, it, it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. They don't want to believe. And that's the tragedy in life as we go through self-justifying, saying, ah, oh, the Bible's not this. Christians are hypocrites. I'm, I'm not going to go to church. Right. You know, they, they self, but self-justification is a roadway to hell because you can self-justify yourself to, to, to say anything. You want an affair? I can make, okay, my wife's not being good. You can self-justify everything. And God's saying, wait a second. Uh, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And so that's the problem in our culture today is we're, we're given too many excuses by experts and say, oh, the Bible's this, when no. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Bible is the Word of God breathed upon its pages, and if we follow what it says, it'll lead you to uh, find salvation, forgiveness of sin, and lost locations if you want to use as a roadmap as I do. How many, how many places along the island of Malta have a, have a slope away from the island of 120 meters, followed by 90, followed by a sandbar that overlooks. No, no the nowhere, beach. nowhere on the island. That's I mean, you've why been there. We have. That's the oh, only I've, place. I've been. I've been there. I don't know how many times. Uh, you know, filming it. I've lived. I've gone around every. The whole island. I've gone around every square foot of it. I mean, it's just. It's there. This is the place. And so. you said if a ship had had crashed with anchors in it, they would all be together because they just dropped straight down. So the fact mm -hmm. that you, you use the word splayed means what? That they were By the Bible said they're, they're deployed so they would tether the ship and when you deploy them like that you're kind of tethered out like that. You have one there, one there, one there. That's, the, the anchors were found like this at 120 foot. So it's like right where they were cut and left in the sea. Right. It's, it's perfect. You see Luke is chronically accurate right. and we have descriptions of, uh, from 
of, of Christ's crucifixion location. Now we're doing research on where Golgotha is. We shared that at dinner last night. Right. Where's the Temple of Solomon? Well, I'm using the Bible. I just met with Netanyahu. I mean, he, he has a book that's signed. He, these, this, because if we found where the temple is, we found where all this is, the real location, it changes the world. So right. I'm kind of nervous that, you know, this little kid that started eating donuts at a church is now starting <laughs> right. World War III, you know? So let me, let me ask you this question then. So what does it do for your faith? If these indeed are the anchors of Paul, and evidence suggests mm -hmm. that uh, there's a very high probability, uh, these would be the only man-made items ever found or preserved from the New Testament era that mm -hmm. we're aware of. That in, were mentioned in the, in the Bible. Yeah, mentioned in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, what does it do for your faith to, to touch them, to, to see them, uh, to, know, to know that they're there? And let, let me even, I guess, expand on that question. After 64 expeditions over 30 years, um, do you read your Bible now more or less skeptically? Every time you read something, do you think, I want to go see if that's there? Or do you, do you just trust it? Because there's a lot of people here today who are much more like Thomas mm -hmm. than the other disciples. You know, Jesus, after the resurrection, came to the disciples, set them alive. Thomas wasn't there. They told Thomas, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. And Thomas said, um, not until I see it for myself. So there are some of us who believe, on, who believe on faith, right? And Jesus says, blessed are you. You don't have to see, touch, feel to believe. But he didn't say, Thomas, shame on you. You can't ever believe. He said, I understand there are going to be some who have to see and believe evidence first, but you can believe too. Do you read your Bible as just got to all be true, or do you read it skeptically and still, are you still in search of answers? Well, we're always searching, we're always looking for answers, but, the, but I look at the Bible skeptically because it says, be like the Brians and test God, because every time I test God, I find out that it's true. My faith level goes up, because in this world today, um, well, there's, there's two ways to find truth. One is premise plus proof. You say, here's the premise. Uh, the world is flat. You can find people today still say the world's flat. We never went to the moon. 15% of the people, or 17% now, say we never even went to the moon. It was staged in a sound stage, right? You know, big conspiracy, 40,000 people at NASA were all in on it. It's ridiculous, but there's people that believe that. 17% of the people. And so uh, they, you know, uh, what, they, what they do is they'll, get, they'll, they'll help their premise and they'll put all these people around it that agree with them. They stay in the safe harbor of mutual consent. Scholars not in, are not interested in finding information to help them make a decision. They're looking for confirmation from others to justify an opinion they already have. You know, so that's what scholarship is. You write a book and everybody agrees with me. But no, the way you find truth is problem plus possibility. That's what cops do. What is the problem and what are the possibilities? And so that's what we use to do it. You see, but in, in our faith lives, I look out here and I see, I see a lot of you covered with dust. We all live in homes or apartments or abodes, right? And it's amazing, but you don't see it in the air. But after a while, on the, on the, the nightstand, it gets dusty. You can take your finger and make a little line and see it, right? And that's, what, that's what's happening in your lives is dust is falling on you every day from the world. Oh, the Bible's not true. Pastors are, have problems. They run into this, they run into that problem. You know, that's a little piece of dust that falls. All the, you don't see them, and pretty soon your gears of faith get clogged up, and mine do too, because I just have the world just hammers on you. The Bible's not true. Jesus isn't who he says he is. Follow me. I'll give you happiness through this product, or this affair, or this that, or this alcohol. 
But that's dust that falls on you. Pretty soon your gears get so gummed up that they're hard to go, and then pretty soon for some of you, your gears stop. And your faith just stops. But if you read Scripture to me, it's, it's a solvent that washes that way, and it's a lubricant. So I constantly get in the Word of God, and it takes away those doubts. Because every time I find in the Bible, it's actually coming out to be true. And I've been studying this and hammering on the Bible for years. And if it was wrong, if I found one thing wrong, I'd tell you. But the Bible is historically true and prophetically true. And the ramifications are amazing because the Bible claims that you could have eternal life when you die. You drive home today and die. Guaranteed, in writing, eternal life and forgiveness of sin. That, to me, is amazing. And there are some people who accept that by faith. You just, in your soul, you believe it. But there was a generation of church that wanted people to put faith in faith, which means this, have faith. Why? Because I said so. Just have faith in faith. It's always been true. Don't ask questions. Faith in faith takes you to heaven. You're saying faith and evidence. Because not, not, not just evidence, not just faith, but faith with evidence can convince you to take the step from the natural to the supernatural. Talk about the moment that your dad did that as we get ready to close today. Okay, I'm, I'm going to close here. I'm really excited to tell you this. this the point. But first of all, when Thomas was a doubter, he met Christ, every, and he said, um, here's the whole, Jesus says, here's the holes in my hands and my side. That's called evidence-based education. Okay, he's saying, he's showing evidence. That's what I try to do, show evidence to get people to go, wow, because you see actual physical evidence. Um, but, we should, but faith is a great thing. But for me, I'm an evidence guy, okay? I'm not going to be a faith, faith guy. I've got to see it. Maybe that's a fault in my personality. Maybe it's a weakness in my faith. But I love seeing the evidence. It really doesn't. But my father, uh, we talked about earlier, uh, was a bad drinker. And the alcohol just made him a bad guy. But there's times he just hugged me and we had tender moments growing up. It was a really up or down. It was very, very dysfunctional getting raised by him. So um, he's... The doctor said, you're, you have cancer and you're going to die. So he's in the bed and he calls me to the bedside and closed the door. He says, Bobby, always Bobby. Um, he said, I, I've been a bad dad to you. I feel so horrible about that. And he goes, and I'm going to hell. I'm dying. The doctor just said I have two to six months to live. And he said, I'm going to be in hell, you know, because I'm, I'm such a bad guy. I said, well, no, no, dad. I said, dad, wait, 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 hold on, time out. We're all bad people. You know, if, folks, if you knew what God knew about me, you wouldn't have invited me here today. And if I know what God knows about you, I wouldn't have come here. You, know? you wouldn't have invited me and I wouldn't have come here. Because we're all, right? We're all sinners. So I'm talking to my dad and I'm holding his hand and he said, i just too bad a person. I said, no. I said, when, when Jesus was leaving Jericho, he saw the, 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 the beggars there. And I've lived in Ethiopia for a long time, worked a lot of there in Ethiopia. There's a lot of beggars. They smell from their urine, their waste, their sweat. They're just, you go by them, they're covered in flies. You put your hand up, literally, beggars. I've walked by and I've seen them covered in flies and you just can't even go over and the stench is so bad you can't even get close to them. Jesus said, call them here and he healed them. Healed them. I said, Dad, you're a sinner, but there is a solvent that will wash away your sin. That's the blood of Jesus. There's collateral that gets you into heaven. You can pay your way into heaven with this collateral. You know what? That's, that's the blood of Jesus. That's the, at the cross, that's that moment in history at the cross when Jesus was crucified, he did so for all mankind that we'd be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life, the Bible says. 
So I told this to my dad. I read it in scripture, and to make a long story short, he says, "I want." I, I said, "I, I want." So he prayed with me, and the tears came down his face. And all those years of cigarette smoking, drinking, and anger, his face seemed to wash away. It just literally was a transformation. And the Bible says there'll be that moment of transformation because there's a spiritual line there. The, the, the man without the spirit doesn't come from the, not the spirit of God because there's foolishness you can't understand because it's spiritually discerned. In other words, the Bible has to be spiritually discerned. You won't understand it. It'll be confusing to you until you take that step across the line. I told my dad to take heed. He did. And he accepted Christ into his life. And at that moment, I saw a transformation of him. And my, my brother came in, Paul, and said, what's going on with dad? I said, he's a, he, he's, he's a Christian. He accepted the Lord. He goes, no way, Dad. I said, yeah. So Dad goes, read from the Bible. So he read the book of John, and Paul said, okay, he read the whole book of John. He goes, keep going. Read me the whole Bible. Paul says, this is a big book. I'm going to go home and rest. So we go home and rest. We'll talk tomorrow about it. So we go home, and we get a phone call from my mother. They just put a sheet over my father's face. He said, he's dead. I got a big smile. I wasn't glad he was dead because he'll be in heaven for all eternity. And this, we're going to have a relationship through all eternity. My father will be with him, forgiven of sin for all eternity. And so uh, it's hard for me to get through it, but he, he accepted the Lord, and that's the greatest gift he could have given me. Anyway, that's, that, that was the greatest moment I've ever had. Amen. And we want, we want you to understand today, some of you can say, Christian, 45 minutes, man, you're not going to take me from where I am, answer all my questions, and have me step from the natural to the supernatural. But others of you were already at the line. Like you were standing at the line, and all you needed was just a little evidence, a little faith, a, a little confidence that you can trust the Bible. God's already been speaking to your heart. You just needed a little evidence to line up with it. And today that has happened. So maybe you're here today, and like... Bob's dad years ago, you want to step from natural to supernatural. You, you want to believe in an unseen God because your heart, plus a little bit of evidence, tells you that you can trust it in faith. And if that's you, I just want to ask everyone in here, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes.